guys can have a seat. Great to see all of you. Uh, there's some seats up here in the front, Aaron. You guys need some seats. Kind of running out of seats tonight, which is a darn shame. We love that. Isn't that exciting? A little bit? Yeah. We're, uh, got on websites today trying to find more chairs and trying to see what we're going to do. And it's kind of an exciting program, uh, a problem. I want to invite you guys. Uh, hey, good to see you. Hey, buddy. Hey, come on in, man. Yeah, great to see you. That's always quality, isn't it, when the last seats remaining are in the front, you know? You don't want to be that guy, but we're glad you are that guy. And welcome to you guys as well. Uh, probably the first, second time here tonight, right? Nothing like an intro like that. Um, I want to want to invite you guys tonight to an extension of life. What I mean by that is, very simply, we believe here in this church community that um, when we gather as a church, it's an extension of life. It is life. Uh, it's not like when we're gathered here that all of a sudden something changes. And now, oh, now we're in church, right? Well, we, we believe that the church is the people, right? And the Spirit of God is guiding us to live lives, to breathe. And so when you're here, it's an extension of life. And so let me just tell you a couple things uh, as we like take this journey of life tonight. Is that, is that we're looking for genuine, we want the real thing. We don't want to settle for anything less. And so because of that, it takes a heart of vulnerability on each of our parts to know every single one of us in this room are desperate, depraved, in complete need of God's grace. And no one in here is, is not in need of God's grace. And so because of that, hey, welcome. Like even if today was the absolute worst, confusing, lost day of your life, even if you're coming off some massive struggles, some repetitive sin, um, the great thing is, is that in the next seconds we have opportunities to repent, not because we're in church or because we've gathered, but because He's alive and His grace is sufficient. Amen. So I want to welcome you guys tonight to that extension of life as we gather to open our words, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. If you're just joining us tonight, if you're just tuning in, uh, I want to share with you guys that last week we were looking at some beautiful words of Jesus describing that that, that there is a narrow door, okay? That, that things in this life, when it comes to following Him and serving Him, it's difficult. It's narrow. It's not a broad road. In fact, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, we, we talked about and looked at that wide is the road and broad is the path that leads to destruction. But narrow is the road that leads to life. And so we saw this premise that Jesus was painting that, look, 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 it is a narrow path, even if we have to navigate through woods and utter chaos that the path to me is narrow and at the end and this is where we're going to start tonight is we saw this like really deep rich passage that was aimed very specifically at the jews and it was very specific tension that was happening between the jews and the gentiles and so i I just want to get you guys into tonight tonight is going to be like a ton of history okay it's going to be a ton of context tonight simply because the passage that we're dealing with beckons for that. We can't not do it. And so, if you love, how many of you guys love history? Yeah, you, got, you like timelines? Yeah, for the rest of you, we have crayons in the back, uh, you know, feel free, right? We got fill in the Jesus, no, I'm just kidding. Like, well, if, if you're not a history buff or if you don't like history and context, tonight, it's almost like I have to say, like, you have to. Because to get the nature of the passage that we'll be dealing with tonight, you must understand where this passage is and what's happening there. And so we have to begin by redefining for each of us what the Gospel of Luke is even about. Like, who is he writing to? Again, Luke is a doctor and is writing to this man named 
Theophilus. Now, the date for when, uh, when, when Luke wrote is a little bit ambiguous. May have been the 60s, may have been the 70s, may have been the 80s. You guys are like, I sound like we're like talking about our time, you know, like back in the 60s, you know. So there, there's a little bit of ambiguity about when he wrote it, but we know this for sure. That he was writing to a man named Theophilus who is a Gentile, not a Jew by simple definition. Okay, if you're like, so, so like tell me about like what's a Jew and what's a Gentile. A, a Jew is very clearly defined, a Gentile is not a Jew, okay. So pretty much at this point it's you're either a Jew or by definition biblically you're a Gentile. Now, now he's writing to a Gentile and so his entire gospel then, understand this, is focused to understanding that Jesus didn't just come for the Jews. Which if you're a Jew, this is a strange teaching. Like in fact, you may not even be ready for this teaching. Because you have been waiting for the Messiah to come. You've been in that first waiting room period like we've talked about. And you're waiting for that Messiah to come back. And you're anticipating and expecting that he's coming for you as a Jew. Because you're the chosen people, right? Well, what we keep seeing through the scripture and through the gospel as Luke portrayed. And really all through the gospels. All the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's. It's that Jesus didn't just come for the Jews, but that he came for the Gentiles. And so, to better set up that context, we're going to start in three verses that we ended off last week in verse 28 of Luke chapter 13. Are you there? Say, I'm there. Now, he's talking about when the door shuts in the face of those who finally realize that the period of grace is over and that they can't get in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says in verse 28, a very positive verse, there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. Um, I, we didn't talk about, about this much last week, but is anyone else bothered by the, um, let, me, let me just try to describe this as best I could. You guys know like the chalkboard noise, right? When you, the chalk, then you just kind of, you know, when the chalkboard does, hits the board wrongly, you know what I'm talking about? And it just like just sends that chill. Now imagine, uh, some of you guys get bothered by the same, like when your teeth kind of grind in that weird way. And it makes like that weird sound. You guys know what I'm talking about? Or do only my teeth make that weird noise? Apparently I have some deformed mouth. You know what I mean? But, but imagine like weeping and gnashing of teeth. Like I don't really want you to get this image, but I do kind of. Like this is, this is not good. I mean this is like the, uh, this is not just like some chalkboard noise. All right, This is wretched depravity apart from Christ. They'll be weeping there a national of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. If you're a Jew, you've been waiting to like hook back up with your great ancestors. The name Abraham, if you're a Jew, you guys understand this? The name Abraham, you just say Father Abraham, like you're not singing some has many sons song, you know what I mean? I mean, you're, you're thinking to yourself like this, like Father Abraham, the, one of the fathers of my complete faith, and Isaac and Jacob. And so you're telling me, Jesus, that when the door shuts, that I'm going to be let out even so much that I'm not even going to get to participate in this kingdom with my great ancestors there. And Jesus is saying, that's, that's exactly what I'm saying. And so, friends, imagine if you're a Jew. Like, this is, this is a dagger. Like, so Jesus, you're telling me that I'm not going to, Abraham, no, no. And, and he goes on, and, and almost worse, verse 29, people will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Not just are you not going to see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the Gentiles are going to get into the kingdom of God. But like, can you guys just imagine this? Again, I know it's hard because we're not Jews, but if you're hearing 
that the Gentiles are going to be getting into the kingdom ahead of you. Like this is causing a tremendous amount of tension, right? This is, I mean, if you're a Jew listening to this, you're like, are you, Jesus, are you kidding me? Can you pull the dagger out right now? Yeah, 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 I can if you come to me. If you stop following this, this law that you've created in your own mind and think that that's your way to righteousness, I am your way to righteousness. Isn't it unbelievable to you guys? That as the chosen nation of God, time and time again, they have opportunities. And here they've been waiting on the Messiah. And he's standing in front of their face. And they're, they're like, you're not the Messiah. Like, you don't look like this Messiah that we've created in our minds. So you're not the Messiah. Then he ends in verse 30, kind of closing this whole piece up by saying this. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. In other words, to illustrate this great point that those who in your mind you thought that you would be above will actually, uh, will actually, like you'll be standing completely behind them. Um, I want to start out tonight just by a great call uh, for humility for each of us. Um, and and I, just, I just implore upon your heart as we continue to, d- d- to dive into this text and this history lesson almost, um, that each of us just kind of takes a step back and we just get enamored with the fact, God, you know what? Like, I know there was an incredible amount of tension between the Jews and, and all that. I know that, but God, I'm just thankful for you. I'm just thankful to be here tonight and be able to listen to your word and to go after it. And so, God, will you just humble our hearts tonight as we continue to go? Verse 31 picks up in this. At that, at that time, connecting last week and this week, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said this, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Now this is Herod Antipas. We're going to talk about the Herods here in a little bit. Go somewhere else because Herod wants to kill you. Doesn't this seem a little bit strange? That the Pharisees have come to Jesus and it almost looks like they're trying to protect him. You know what I mean? It's like, hold on a second. Um, I'm pretty sure that so far in, in this gospel, like the Pharisees and Jesus, they haven't been like best pals. You know what I mean? Like, hey buddy, hey. I mean, they, they, they haven't been like good friends. And so it seems strange to me, maybe just me, that all of a sudden the Pharisees would come to Jesus and say, uh, hey, you need to leave because Herod Antipas wants to kill you. And so it begs the question, like, what really is happening here, you know? Like, are they really just some good Pharisees, or what's really happening here? Now, there are several theories. I think it's very possible, especially what we see later in the Gospels, that there are a good piece of the Pharisees, right? That there are a few of them. In fact, we're going to see later in the Gospel of Luke. A couple individuals who are Pharisees that even come to Christ. And so it's very possible that there are at least a few Pharisees that have decent-hearted motives. It's also possible that they're scheming completely, that Herod really hasn't made a death threat, and that they're just completely scheming to get Jesus to leave this place, which right now he's in a place called Perea, which is not Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem, trying to get him to Jerusalem, knowing that when they got to Jerusalem, that bad things would happen there. Are you guys with me? So Jesus, leave this place because here, like you're under the rule of of Herod, but if you go south, there's going to be religious tension, there's going to be political tension, and when you're there, like we'll be able to judge you on our own, right? Regardless, on his ministry path to, to Jerusalem, these Pharisees come and say, Jesus, you need to get out of here because someone wants to kill you. He responds this way. He replied, go tell that, what does your Bible say? Fox. Yeah, any fox lovers in here, right? Kind of a weird animal, isn't it? You know? 
It's like who even talks about foxes? Or what, feeks? What's the plural? I don't know. Foxes? All right. Feeks would be better. You know, no, it wouldn't. Apologize. Go tell that fox. I, I'm sorry. I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. Did, did you guys get that? Go tell that fox. I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. Now, this is beautiful. First of all, a fox. Don't know much about them, but I do know this. They're represent, uh, the representative of like a cunning animal, right? They're kind of sly. Like they kind of deceive their prey. And so I think that he's calling a Herod a deceiver. Like, hey, hey, Herod, uh, deceiver. Like, no, I don't think so. But more importantly than that, listen to this. Listen to this. This is gorgeous. A fox, friends, in ancient Jewish tradition, is an insignificant animal. Hold on a second. Like, if you would have said, hey, go tell that lion, right? Big difference, right? Like, like I'm not even scared of a fox. You know what I mean? Like, a fox is just this, I don't even, it's like a little dog. You know what I mean? It's like a little butt. I don't even know what it is, right? He even has a small tail. If you would have said, go tell that lion, that has completely different connotations, doesn't it? But he says, go tell that, what? That fox. So it's almost as if he's saying the exact same thing to Herod, listen, that he told to Pilate at the end of the Gospel of John. When Pilate comes to Jesus and he's like, hey, what am I going to do here? And Jesus essentially says, you know what? The only power you have is the power that's been given to you. So it really doesn't matter, this whole entire conversation. Just carry out what you're supposed to because all you're doing is carrying out the will of God. You guys, are you guys with me? So he tells Herod, like, like, look, you little insignificant animal. Go tell that fox that he is just a little pawn in this great plan that God has. And you are insignificant. And by the way, Herod, I'm going to go ahead and continue to cast out demons. I'm going to continue to heal people today and tomorrow so that on the third day I will what? What does your scripture say? Reach my goal. Five times in the Gospel of John we see this phrasing, my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come, alluding to a time that will come, which we do see Jesus say in the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Luke. This timeline of the passion of Jesus continues to be birthed. And this is the fourth time that we're going to see Jesus. Let's continue and, and look at this next verse. Verse 33 says, In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside, what's the word there? Jerusalem. So he says, look, I have to keep going because I'm going to die. The fourth time in Luke so far that he's made reference to his death. If you're a disciple, you're one of the twelve. You've been called by, by Jesus to come and follow. You, you've, you've been Peter and you've dropped the fishing nets. You were Matthew and you dropped your coin because you were a tax collector. And you keep hearing that the one that you're following is going to die. And, and you're like around for, for this tension and you're seeing this tension that's created. Like so, so far now, like all of a sudden Jesus is escalated to a place of political interest. Are you guys with me? Uh, do you guys remember who killed John the Baptist? That's right, Herod Antipas. All right? So he's already made some significant uh, uh, killings, martyrdom for people uh, who are following this kind of religious way. And all the while, Jesus says, you insignificant animal, I must keep my path. If anything was going to deter you from your path, don't you think it would be like a death threat? Right? If like you and I, right, are going to, uh, let's say, a party. And we're going to go hang out with some friends, all right? It's a fun party. You know, we're going to play some cards, enjoy some time together, play Blurt. It'll be fun. 
And someone calls me up and they're like, hey, Mark, uh, here's the deal. Uh, someone tonight, the party you want to go to, wants to kill you. Um, oh, really? You know? Like, it doesn't create a great party atmosphere. You know what I mean? You're like, so someone at the party wants to, yeah, Mark, someone wants to kill you. Okay, well, I'm going to just, like, ten times out of ten, hey, hey, honey, um, Heidi, we're just, we're just going to have a date night tonight. You know what I mean? Like, we're just going to hang out. I mean, if there's anything that will deter you from the path that you're on, it's this threat of death. But to Jesus, it, like, energizes him. You guys see this? But to Jesus, it breathes life for him. And it's almost like, are you, do you guys see this in the text? It's almost like he gets excited. He's like, oh really, there's a death threat? Because why? Because that's the plan. He's, ex- listen, he's experiencing the plan of God coming to fruition. Oh really, there's a death threat on my life? That's the plan for me. Like I've come to walk on this earth and to die. And I get the blessing of watching Father God carry out that plan. My friends, how incredible, even in Jason's story, is it to watch the plans of God just come to fruition in your life? Think back in your life right now of all of the stages and all the things that had to get done for you to be sitting in this chair right now. Right? It's unbelievable. And oftentimes, unfortunately, it doesn't excite us. Oftentimes, unfortunately, we take that plan for granted. We kind of sit back, yeah, yeah, God, you're great, right? But when you just sit back for a moment and you think about the beauty of His plan, we can even become like Christ if it may even cause suffering to say, to God be the glory because it's your beautiful plan. And so if you're like me, you're sitting here at this verse and you're like, okay, Jesus is God, okay? So... He's able to stay on this path of death because he's a piece of the Godhead. Father, Son, Spirit. I mean, he's, he's God. He's carrying out the plan. And, so, and, so, and so, so if you're like me, you're like, so how can I do that? He's like, yeah, yeah, that was great for Jesus. I mean, he has a death threat come on him and he just stays the course. In fact, it seems to like almost excite him and he, he's just like on it. But for me, like, how, how does that even become me? Like, what, like how, do, how can I even follow in the footsteps of Jesus so much so that I stick to the plan of God even if a death threat comes? Uh, that's a great question, isn't it? And that is the question, isn't it? Um, there is this little piece of the Godhead as well that Jesus said he was going to leave us. Um, I know that oftentimes in evangelical churches, we don't talk about it because we're fearful of what it may cause. That if you say the words, someone may stand up and like walk out. But he said that he had and was going to leave the promised Holy Spirit to us. That somehow inside of us, if you were saved by grace through faith, by the saving work of Jesus Christ, that you would have residing in you the Holy Spirit as your great counselor. That would be a spirit not of timidity, but of power, of love, and of self-control. Oh, 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 I know, I know. Holy Spirit like Mark. like we're, You know what? It's a real essential element of you and I's walk with faith. Uh, in Romans chapter 6, the entire chapter... It's about killing our sins and allowing them to have died on the cross and that now through God's Spirit, we are made alive with Him 
in Jesus. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 12, please. Gospel of John, chapter 12. I want to show you guys how this gets fleshed out a little bit more specifically, if I may. John chapter 12, verse 23. You guys there? Say, I'm there. Thank you for the enthusiasm. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is the piece in John I was talking about earlier. The time hasn't come. The time hasn't come. The time hasn't come. Verse 23, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Let me me repeat. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Verse 25. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus was implying the verse that Jason already read tonight, that life somehow comes through death. That through his death, seeds would be saved. That through death, and death on a cross, and then resurrection in a grave, that life would come. If he said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, what the image is, is that you and I are called to daily what? To daily die. We're called to that daily death. And so if you're like me, and you're struggling, you're like, okay, Jesus... Like, how do you stay this path of death in your life? And I believe that Jesus would teach each of us tonight, is there another way? Like, what do you mean, how do you stay the course of death? Is there another way? I showed you how to do it. And I called you to do the same thing. Not to pay a penalty for your sins, because that's been taken care of. But to follow in my example of killing your flesh by allowing me to save your flesh and the cravings of this world, which will pass away, First John says, and that if those who do the will of God will have eternal life. Friends, when we die, listen to this, the gospel just happens in our life. When our flesh dies, we can't help but breathe the life of the gospel. When our flesh dies, when we say this world has nothing for me, when we claim complete victory in the cross of Christ, like we can't help but just live the gospel. So you spend your life head up looking for opportunities to constantly love. Why? Because it's just who you are. That's why when we talk about church being just an extension of life, that's what it is. It's an extension of a bunch of people who have said, you know what, we've committed ourselves to daily dying. Jesus did it first, and he's called us to do the same. And because of that, I have no other options. Because of that, I just die. And the gospel just happens. And so for some of you guys, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I just, I want, like, energy and encouragement to be able to share my faith with with my friends. Well, you know what? First of all, it starts out with a passionate pursuit of the cross and a death of flesh. And then the rest will take care of itself because the spirit living within you will give you discernment on when to speak and when to shut up about when to lead by example, about when just to let your life flow through. Friends, when we die, the gospel just happens. And that should be energizing just like it was to Jesus. Because dying to our flesh and dying to ourself is the plan and will of God. And that's your other struggle, isn't it? You're like, 
Jesus knew God's will. You know what I mean? He had a clear advantage. You know? Like he keeps talking about how he's supposed to go to Jerusalem and die. And so this entire time, he's well aware of the fact that he's supposed to go to Jerusalem and die. And so you're sitting here, maybe like me sometimes, and you're like, I, I, just, I just don't know the will of God. Like, what is the will of God for my life? Some of you are completely lost looking for direction, just be honest. Like, what do I do next? This job isn't fulfilling. This college isn't really getting it done. Don't we know the will of God? Like, well, well, yeah. Oh, so you're going to play the Bible card, Mark. Good one. Yeah? I saw that in Sunday school one time. That was sweet. Is there another card to play? Like, well, what do you want me to do? The will of God, my friends. Have you opened it? Are you breathing it? Are you living it? Those of you who are struggling, looking for direction... Jesus knew God's will because, A, he was God, but he was intimately connected with the Father. You're like, well, yeah, but sometimes God gives specifics. I agree. That's why Galatians 5 says, stay in step with the Spirit. When you live within the Spirit, the Spirit will guide those very specific steps. And in the meantime, the will of God. Love him and love people. The will of God. Is it really that difficult to understand, church? Why are we overcomplicating something that's so simple? Because when we overcomplicate, it confuses death of flesh. When we overcomplicate, all of these other factors start coming in, and then all of a sudden we're, 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 we're not dying to our flesh at all. And so we get completely confused about the will of God. Jesus knew God's will. He was able to stay the course. We know God's will. And for those of you who are blood-bought by the saving work of Jesus, you have the Spirit of Christ living, living inside of you. And start. Let's stop selling that short, amen? Let's allow our passion for Christ to draw us to the Word as His Spirit leads and guides us. This verse is not over, and this is where it's going to get interesting. Verse 34 says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not, what's the word? willing. Um, I was burdened when I was studying this. Because the reality was I read, O Jerusalem and O Jerusalem. And to be honest with you, I felt like, like I didn't have a good understanding of what he was saying here. And then I thought about you guys. And I was like, you know, the reality is if I went up to random McGee's in here and I just said, hey, what do you know about Jerusalem? I think the answers would be, well, it's a, it's a holy city. Yeah, yeah. Well, why? Well, you know, Jesus is God's people, chosen city, you know? And it's spelled with a J, which is the same letter as Jesus, you know? It's just cool, right? So here's the deal. I was like, you know what? If we're really going to understand the context of a Savior lamenting over a city, then we better know the implications of the city. Can you guys, are you guys with me? So here's what we're going to do. Eight and a half minutes or so through the entire history of Jerusalem... From Genesis chapter 14 to Jesus, okay? Alright, now if you're here and you're like, hold on a second, what's about to happen? I'm not sure, but we're going to go for it anyway, alright? Put up this first map. I want to show you guys just kind of a map. This is what Jerusalem uh, typically looks like today. Now I want to point out a couple things, okay? Uh, you'll see two Muslim mosques 
here, this is the Dome on the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, all right? Uh, the, the Dome on the Rock sits on where the Temple Mount uh, would have sat in Jesus' day. I also want to point out to you uh, this great wall of Jerusalem. I also want to point out to you that over here is the Mount of Olives. The significance of the Mount of Olives is that Jesus, when he rode the donkey during the triumphal entry up to Jerusalem, he passed, or he passed through what? Through the Mount of Olives. And so his path to Jerusalem came through this little valley up to the city wall of Jerusalem. Next slide. This will show us kind of what it looks like. Uh, th- this is uh, Jerusalem, what it, would have, what it would have looked like in the day of Jesus, okay? Here's the Mount of Olives here, okay? Here's the Temple Mount. Uh, I, I've been to Jerusalem, and it is an unbelievable city of diversity, okay? It's an unbe- just complete diversity of all kinds of peoples. Next slide. Now, we first see the city of Jerusalem, and, and you can't read it there because the screen's being naughty, but Genesis chapter 14, we see this man named Melchizedek. Oh, we, we all agreed when we were teaching Genesis that we would all name our sons that, right? Because it would just be fun and cool, right? But Melchizedek is quoted in Genesis chapter 14 as being the king of Salem. Now, Salem is most typically identified to this ancient city named Jerusalem. It'll be interesting for you to know. That in the Holy Scriptures of God, there are 792 mentions of the word Jerusalem. 792. Um, Love, which is the greatest commandment, 697. There are more mentions in the Scriptures of God of the city Jerusalem than there are love. Then if you count city of David, city of Zion, etc., etc., there's over a thousand mentions. The very first in Genesis chapter uh, 14. Next slide. Genesis chapter 22, this is amazing. We see uh, God call Abraham to take his son Isaac to sacrifice him on this mount called Mount Moriah. Now, Mount Moriah is the exact precise mount that I just showed you where the temple was built. On the exact mount where Abraham was called to sacrifice Isaac is the mount where the temple eventually, and we'll get there, ended up being built. Okay, next slide. Now, there's this interesting group of people that from the time when the Egyptians uh, finally released the Israelites by God's mighty hand, there was this group called the the Jebusites that that resided in Jerusalem. They were a, um, how can I describe them, just kind of an indigenous, um, kind of backcountry group of people. Really not a lot to them, and and if you do a lot of research, uh, you can't find a lot to them. But we do know this. That around the time of Joshua, and if you ever want to study Joshua, this would be an amazing scripture for you to look at. In Joshua chapter 10, this, uh, their king, the Jebusite king, named Adonai Zedek, all right, gathered four other monarchs with him. And they rose up and they wanted to battle against Joshua. In one of the coolest stories in scripture, over Jerusalem, this battle takes place. And Joshua, by God's mighty hand, wipes out the Jebusites. And in Joshua chapter 10, any of you guys know what happens in Joshua chapter 10? The best bleach song ever. The sun stands still. All right? In this battle over Jerusalem. Okay? Now, the Jebusites, despite being conquered by Joshua, stay inhabited in Jerusalem until the time of David. Next slide. David. You guys have all heard of King David, right? Everyone say David. Now, here's the sweet thing about David. He goes up against the Jebusites, and he conquers Jerusalem in about 1000 B.C. Now, in 1000 B.C., when he conquers Jerusalem, he takes his entire entourage... And they set up Jerusalem as the political uh, capital city in Israel. 
So he comes to Jerusalem and he sets up everything there to be politically focused, politically centered. And it's the very first time that we see this massive Jewish kind of political center. But he's not satisfied with that. He decides that he's going to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem as well. And now you're starting to see the significance of where the city went from just a city to kind of something more. So, so David asked for the Ark of the Covenant to be brought to Jerusalem. You're like, well, what's the Ark of the Covenant? Like, what is that? It's this small um, casing, okay, if you will, that held within it the Mosaic Law on the two tablets, but not just that. It also held this golden bowl of manna, all right? And if you guys know what manna is, right? Food from heaven, you know what I mean? A lot like Mountain Dew, you know what I mean? Or some of these other things. Just kidding about that, right? But in, in it, it, and it was, to, it was to show and describe this great provision that God had given the Israelites while being in Egypt. Now, now, now here, here's, here's another thing that's in it is Aaron had this, this rod um, that Aaron used. And this rod was to represent, put in the ark, to represent God's feeling towards the rebellion. Okay? So David's like, hey, hey, bring the ark of the covenant uh, to Jerusalem. That would be awesome. For the very first time in, in, in Jewish history. We have a city that is a royal city and a holy city. And all of a sudden, Jerusalem, this name that means a mighty city of God, rises from this like little insignificant town to the city where David decides he wants to build a palace. And not just a palace, but build a what? But build a temple. All right? But David doesn't get to build the temple for a couple different reasons. Instead, next slide. His son uh, Solomon builds the temple. He spends seven years and builds the temple, okay? Uh, uh, can you, uh, Andrew, can you go back to that uh, number two slide? Actually, don't do that. You'll we'll just get confused. Don't worry about it. Um, I, I just wanted you guys to kind of picture the temple again. But Solomon spends seven years and builds this temple to be a permanent holding place for the Ark of the Covenant. Right after Solomon dies is when we see utter chaos break out in Jerusalem, all right? The kingdoms divide into a north and a south kingdom. One would still remain, uh, be, be called Israel. The other would be called Judah, okay? And in this time, we see Egyptians coming and mauling the palace. We see, uh, we see people coming from Syria and, and raiding the palace. We just see utter chaos. We see pieces of the city wall being broken down. We see all kinds of chaos happening until next slide in 721. And in 721, the Assyrians conquer no this sounds like just a great like movie doesn't it you know what i mean in 721 the assyrians conquer the northern kingdom which will have huge implications on the southern kingdom which is where jerusalem is next slide in 597 good old king nebi how many of you guys have seen veggie tales don't admit to that you know just kidding it's king nebuchadnezzar leads the babylonians in and they conquer jerusalem okay and not just do they conquer Jerusalem, but next slide. In, five, uh, in 586, he tears the temple down. And in what's called the Great Exile, he ships out the Israelites. And the Babylonians just take complete control of this great, holy, royal city. That the, now, if you're a Jew listening to this, can you guys imagine just for a second your life? If you're like lived in the time of Jesus, someone would ask, so can you tell me about your ancestors? Yeah, sure. Um, well, we were enslaved by the Egyptians. Then we were conquered about 60 times. You know, I mean, can, I mean, this is just, this life is just over and over and over chaos. And 
And it doesn't end. Next slide. In 538, we see that the Babylon falls to the Persians, okay? And the Persians begin bringing back, uh, at this point, 50,000 of the Jews that were exiled during the exile of the Babylonian Empire. And so they begin bringing them back. Next slide, all right? Um, All of a sudden, in 515, we see the rebuilding of the temple, which uh, turns out to be the the, the second temple is rebuilt in 515 by this king named uh, Zeru. Zerubbabel, I believe is the, is the right pronunciation. So that king rebuilds the temple. Uh, next slide. In 332, all right, we see that Persia falls. So how many of you guys have ever heard of Alexander the Great? Right? Yeah. Great. Three of you. This will connect really well then. All right. Alexander the Great comes and conquers, uh, conquers this entire land, and the Hellenistic period begins. To be honest with you, and I'm just being really vulnerable here, uh, before, I had no idea what that meant. Okay. <laughs> Right? I was like, Hellenistic, is that bad? You know, like, what is that? Well, after, yeah, after doing some research, uh, what is it for those of you guys that know? Yeah, it's a, it's a Greek thing, okay? I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't know that, right? But the Hellenistic period begins, and the Greek culture and, and Greek life began to infiltrate itself, not just in Jerusalem, but really all throughout the land, all right? Next slide. In uh, 166 BC, this priest in the line of Maccabee, came up and started a revolt against Alexander the Great and the Greeks, and they conquered the Greeks. And again, the Jewish people are just in the flux of all of this. They're conquered, and they spend about the next 60 years under the rule of this family line, the Maccabees. Now, next slide. Finally, we get to something uh, more that, that's kind of in the biblical times as far as when it comes to Jesus. In 63, this Roman, uh, this Roman uh, governor, uh, Pompey, comes in, revolts against the family named the Maccabees, and conquers Jerusalem again, like a different hand. We go from the Persian to the Assyrians, the Assyrians, the, I mean, it's crazy. Uh, Herod the Great, next slide, is put in power in 40 B.C., Herod the Great. I don't know if you guys have heard of him. Herod Antipas is who takes over for Herod the Great. We've already seen Herod Antipas in this story. Now in 63, next, next slide, in 63 A.D., after Jesus has died and been risen from the dead, uh, we see that the temple is now again, uh, finally we, we've had to, even though the Jews are under Roman rule, like all of a sudden the temple is kind of able to be reconstructed and rebuilt and it's used again for some good things, all leading up to in 66, that's right, you guessed it, another revolt, and in that revolt, the Jews like got together and, and revolted against the Romans, leading to in 70 AD, the tearing down of the temple again. From Genesis chapter 14 to 70 AD, this town Jerusalem has been in constant turmoil. And if you've ever seen the television, okay, TV, all right, acronym, okay, you would know that this city of Jerusalem now is the major center for three different religions. Judaism, Islam, and Christianity causing Uh, still a tremendous amount of tension. This city, my friends, has forever and through this entire time been a city of chaos. And so now, if you're a Jew and you've gone through this and this has been your lineage and now you understand that David is really who made Jerusalem the city that would be not only holy but royal as well. Now, all of a sudden, let's read this passage again, and maybe it will make a little bit more sense to us. Verse 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. If there's any city that should be awakened to the reality of who God is, it's a city that has been in constant pursuit of God, or a city that God has been in constant pursuit of. Despite all of this chaos, there's been a city and a people that God has continually, over and over, revealed Himself to and dropped manna from heaven and revealed in crazy ways the realities of Himself. And Jesus is lamenting here in a tremendous amount of sorrow and saying, you know what? I wish I could gather you like a hen gathers her chicks, which is an Old Testament way of saying this massive amount of protection. I wish I could just gather you to me. But instead, you're not willing. Now, the law in Old Testament was created for what? It was created for one reason. The law, the Ten Commandments, which was held in the Ark of the Covenant, was made to show our separation from God. In other words, the law was to reveal that you and I couldn't live up to the law. Like we couldn't live up to it. Here's these Ten Commandments. Man, Jesus or God, those seem ideal. Yeah, 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 you won't be able to follow them. And so... So hopefully, it will cause this deep longing of the Messiah that would come and reconnect you. But it doesn't stop with the law. He chooses a people that would have to enact that law and show how much separation there would be. Are you with me? It's one thing to have a law. It's another thing to give the law to people, which he does. He gives it to the Israelites. And he says, here is my law. Sin is, by Wayne Groom's definition, any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. So here's my law. Well, we can't conform to that. We murder, we lie, we covet, we steal. Precisely. That's why I want you to go ahead and give an animal sacrifice so that while you're waiting for the real Messiah to come, you'll understand what it means to have an atonement for sin. So that when he does come, maybe your eyes will be open to the reality of who Jesus is, that he alone covers your sin. You see, the Israelite people represent way more. Jerusalem represents way more than just a people group. It was, listen, the embodiments of how, as people, we couldn't do it. The Israelite nation in the Old Testament is the physical form of we cannot live up to the law. And to that, God says, Amen. That's why I sent Jesus. So now, After knowing all of that context, can you understand a little bit why a Savior would be lamenting over this city? I've revealed myself and revealed myself. Which begs the question, how much time are you and I spending lamenting and sorrow over people that don't know Jesus? We're really quick to focus on self-improvement, aren't we? Really quick to look at one another and say, hey, oh, you know what we should be doing? Is, is we need to make sure that we get off the hamster wheel, which I totally agree with. And we've talked about this principle before. We spend so much time self-improving that we never get to talk about the lost. And more importantly, praying over the lost. And encouraging one another to simply let the gospel happen in our lives because our flesh has been killed, my friends. You see, Jesus is lamenting over the lost here. 
because he knows that they're not going to come to him. And it still causes this lament in him. Unfortunately, for you and I, I fear that we lament over the lost because we feel like we can't save anybody. We're like this, man, God, I've been sharing the gospel with my friend for like three years. And they're just not coming to me. I mean, they're, they're, they won't say the prayer. They're, we just constant arguments. When will we as a church understand that he sends, he empowers, and he saves? Then all of a sudden, we can lament and cry out for the lost, believing that it has nothing to do with us. He sends us as messengers of his great gospel. And that is why our flesh has to die. Because to represent that gospel, it has to be, I've died to my flesh. And so I can represent the life of Christ. He may call you to use words, or to use scriptures, or to sit for weeks upon weeks and just hang with this individual. Other times, He may call you to open your word to very specific scriptures, my friends. But please know this, that He saves. It's not by anything that you will ever do. It's His empowerment through you, showing the gospel through you, so that people can come to Him through Himself. So a proper lamenting is what Jesus reveals here. God, it's your power to save, but that doesn't mean that I can't cry out, that I can't have some emotion over the fact that people will not know you. Do you guys know what Paul says in Romans? He says this. This is kind of a crazy verse. I would give up my salvation, friends, so that those who do not know Him would come to know Him. That's lamenting. That's a deep, passionate sorrow for the lost. So I want to encourage you, in our moments of sorrow for the lost, let it not rest upon sorrow because we're not doing something. But let it rest upon the sorrow that God, we believe in Your great plan and we rest under You. God, continue to send us. Continue to equip me to die to my flesh so that I can represent your gospel well. So that when you call me to go, that I will go with a great amount of fervor. Can you understand now why one would lament over this city? Chaos. Time after time. And he continues to provide and protect. And their eyes are closed. Let's close up in this last verse. Look, your house... Is, des- is left to you desolate, I tell you. You will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, a house left to you desolate is an Old Testament image to the temple, to Jerusalem, to the nation of Israel. And understand in this teaching that Jerusalem is to the nation as a whole. He's using Jerusalem to talk to the entire Jewish nation that your house will be desolate, and I will not get, listen to this, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What is he talking about here? In Philippians chapter 2, we see this image that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. There will be a day when the realization of who the person and work of Jesus is will be revealed to all. And in that day, everyone will bow and every tongue will confess But it does not mean that everyone will be saved. 
because the period of grace has ended. And so he's saying, there will be a day when we'll come together and you'll bow before me. But because of your unwillingness, despite saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which by the way, is the exact same phrase that the Jews said during the triumphant entry. Because of your unwillingness, friends, you will not know me. Let's stand together. There's a great call in our life. To rest in the plan of God. There's a great call on our existence tonight for our flesh to be killed so that the gospel can just be happening in our hearts. So tonight is a celebration. That's right, a celebration. Despite the lamenting of a Savior, is a celebration of God's plan. We celebrate His plan of Jesus from the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, God created Elohim, Father, Son, Spirit. Jesus was always the plan of redemption. And friends, can you see, thousands of years later, Jesus fulfilling that plan of redemption and saying, You know what, Herod? You little insignificant animal. You can't do anything to me. I'm keeping the course. I'm heading to die so that I can be raised from the dead and give this world grace. And so tonight we celebrate God's great plan. We celebrate His sovereignty and who He is. And by doing that, friends, we're going to close tonight in a responsive reading. I'm going to read passages from Psalm chapter 33. And we're going to respond in the same psalm that Jesus quoted. Psalm 186 saying, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. So I'll read the passage. And each time after I read a couple passages, let's respond with, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 33 verse 4 says this, For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all He does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of His unfailing love. Blessed is He. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. Their starry host, by the breath of his mouth, he gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep in the storehouses. Church, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Listen to this, church. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. Listen to this. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of His heart throughout all generations. Blessed is He who comes in the name. Lord Jesus, I ask that right now You create in our hearts a desire to serve You under you, for you, because of you, a part of your great plan and redeeming work, believing that you do have a plan and your plan was Jesus, that you don't need us, but you desire us. You don't need us to accomplish anything that you would do, but you, you've blessed us with the opportunity to live out the gospel as an expression of this great life that you've called us to live. So God, empower us by your Holy Spirit to stay in step with it, 
God, may your spirit guide us that we can forever believe in your great plan. Lord Jesus, we pray that you'll bring us back to you.